Hey, everyone. Oh, nice. We got a little crowd here. Sorry about that. I had a weird uh, technical hiccup. It was telling me something was wrong. You guys can hear me, right? Thumbs up. Cool. Uh, I'm really happy with the turnout. This is really exciting. I'm just going to go through some a few things, and then I'm just going to start taking your call. So get in the queue if you have anything you want to ask me about. Uh, this is Single Minded Conversations. It is a social podcast. That is the new term. I've been calling it a podcast. Some people inform me it's not really a podcast, but I'm going to call it a podcast. Um, I'm Jesse Single. I'm an author and journalist and podcaster. I co-host a podcast called Locked and Reported with Katie Herzog. Uh, she's a mortal enemy of mine, but we we keep it together for the podcast. I have a substack called Single-minded. So that's at jessysingle.substack.com. This is sort of an outgrowth of that and we'll cover similar issues. This is mostly going to be an ask me anything. So get in the queue now. We can talk about whatever you want. That's for the first 45 minutes. Then I'll be joined by Ethan Strauss, a friend of mine and a really good writer on sort of the business and culture of sports. He informed me he has a take about the NBA and Kyle Rittenhouse. I'm sure most of you woke up today saying, I want to know uh, about the NBA and Kyle Rittenhouse. So uh, you can look forward to that. Just one point I want to make before we begin is this is like a really new platform and uh, I could definitely use any feedback you have on how I'm doing, the kind of content you want. Um, So please message me, uh, email me, get in touch. There are a million ways to do it. One question I have that I'm really curious for feedback on is if I did a regular segment dedicated solely to taking calls from folks who disagree with me or want to vent about how much they dislike my work, would that be a good regular thing? Uh, it might be the kind of thing where we just need to try it and see if it works. But um, I'm curious about that because like, that's one of the things that uh, draws me to this platform is a possibility of sort of <laughs> – I got my first poop emoji when I mentioned that. Uh, all right. And then, um, yeah, you know, let's just leave it at that. I'll start taking calls. There's a lot of you. I appreciate you guys uh, showed up. Carolina, let me see. Get you in the queue. Oh, take next caller. Uh, you want to unmute yourself if you can, Carolina. Carolina, can you hear me? All right, I'm going to take the next one. Jack, can you hear me? Uh, I think I can. How's it going, man? Good. Just playing uh, uh, MLB um, the show right now. Um, yeah, I just saw you were doing this, so I fi- I figured I'd hop on. Um, so I know this isn't a question for you, but I saw you were doing it with uh, Ethan uh, Sherwood Strauss, and um, yeah. I was one. I kind of wanted his take on the whole Bishop Sycamore uh, situation. Um, I was surprised you guys didn't cover it on uh, Blocked and Reported. Um, why don't we just ask him about it when he gets on? Because I just have not actually, uh, followed it closely. So I do not have an informed take for you. Oh, okay. That's the fake high school, by the way. The fake high school was an awesome story. I just, um, yeah, I, I just, uh, that would be a good thing to ask him about. I bet he has a take. So do you want to just get back in the queue when he's, when he's on? Uh, yeah, sure. That's, that'd be awesome. Cool. Thank you, man. All right, Nick, how's it going?
Like he's gone. Dutch, how's he going? Hey, good. Can you hear me okay? Yep, I can oh, hear cool. you. Oh, cool. Glad to talk to you, man. I was just curious about Thank your you. thoughts on uh, Jack Dorsey leaving Twitter and uh, Parag Agrawal coming in. Like, do you know anything about him? Uh, what, what do you think is good or bad, you know? I don't. I did see that the first thing that happened was like a very Twitter thing, which was that someone took a quote of his like out of context uh, and tried to drag him. That's like the perfect introduction to being the CEO of Twitter because that's what uh, Twitter is for. I, I think the fact that they immediately tried to like basically make it against the rules to share private photo or video like should tell us a lot about the direction they're trying to take things. I'm really skeptical about how you would even enforce that. Um, and I know they have exceptions carved out for journalists, but I, I just think it's like the kind of thing where once a lot of this technology is out of the bag, I don't know. Are, are you really going to be able to take down video once it goes viral, once it's been copied a million times? I, I'm skeptical of that, but I, I don't know. That, that I sense that they're sort of responding to the fears people have that like Twitter has a pernicious influence on society. What do you think? Uh, I mean, I see it as pretty pretty a big negative right i mean for all of jack dorsey's faults twitter has been remained a pretty stable place that's kind of worked as intended i, I mean it, it's it's you know it's not a great place to be but it is what it is and and uh, i don't know i just the, the some of the things i don't i don't i try not to take the tweets that he, they picked out of parag his history uh you know too much for granted but um but I mean, he doesn't. I mean, he doesn't look like he looks very activist, chosen by the investors, right? I mean, it just seems like the company is going to start going at the whims and becoming very reactionary. I don't know. Um, it doesn't look good to me. I'm sort of curious um, from anyone else who's who wants to talk about this. Like, to what extent people think that there's still like a really useful or good there to save in terms of Twitter? Because I, I sort of view it as something like that I'm addicted to and that I have to engage with, but I, I don't view it as like a positive force. And I, I just think it sort of taps some of our worst impulses and there might n not be a real way to, to fix it. Or, or do you think I'm being too negative? No, I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, it, it, it is, it has been a, like a weird poor force for a lot of people, but yeah, I don't know. It's where the people are. Yeah. I judge every uh, social media platform by whether people are mean to me on it. So, you know, Twitter's terrible then. Well, that's society. I judge them by the same thing. <laughs> Thanks, Dutch. I appreciate the call. Hey, thanks a lot. All right. Uh, Colin. Colin is gone. Nick. Nick, can you hear me? You want to unmute yourself if possible? Oh, I think I made it on this time. Hey, what's up, Nick? Uh, this is actually a BNR question, but are you ever going to do that live event in New York? Yeah, it got... Um... <laughs> It's funny that we were worried about the Delta variant because we're like 12 worst variants in. Uh, we're going to do it. It sort of got delayed because of Delta variant fears because like Katie would be flying across the country and, and it seemed like a fair amount of people were going to travel to see it, which is awesome. I, I've been dreaming about doing this event. I want to do it so badly and we're going to make it happen as quickly as possible. Thank you. Nick. How's it going, Nick? Last time I didn't know how to unmute. Um, Monday night, Pat's Bills for basically <laughs> all the marbles. Give me a score prediction. Uh, Patriots 31, Bills 20. I actually think it's going to be pretty Love high it. scoring. Yeah, are you a Pat's guy? 
big pets guy. Uh, went to Beaver, so oh, in the nice. same area as, as you. Awesome, man. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to alienate the crowd with Pat's talk. We're the worst. Pat's friends are the That's worst. That's okay. Yep. Sorry. No, no, no. no. Pats. I'll, I'll hang up and listen. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> Robert, what's up? Robert, you want to uh, try to unmute yourself if possible? Pat, how's it going? Hmm. Calls keep getting dropped. Learning as I go, guys. All right, Pinky, who has an image of a pig as his or her or their avatar. Also dropped. Colin, what's up? Some technical issues. Um, Patrick, can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? Yep. How's it going, man? I just wanted to go back to the, you know, is the Twitter change a good or a bad uh, move? And my concern with that, for as much of a cesspool as it is, I think the the real value in Twitter is kind of the disintermediation from the whole media ecosystem. And your work is a really good example of that, but we also see it in things like the written house evidence that you just can't see anywhere else. And my real fear with the Twitter change is that that stuff is going to disappear from the platform because it's so subjective. And that's the real value to Twitter to me. And I just wanted to say that because you asked, you know, what people thought if it was good or bad. And that's my fear. Yeah. But, but expand on that. Cause I, I, that, that interests me. Cause I, it wouldn't surprise me if sort of, I think humans are humans and people tend to put their thumb on the scale when they have power. And there's a lot of power controlling, what does and doesn't show up on Twitter. But so what would be an example with the Rittenhouse thing of the kind of content you, you're afraid they'll clap, clamp down on? Well, some of the language in that policy, and I haven't read it closely, but you know, the language is, are they a public person? Are they not a public person? Is it of media interest? Is it not of media interest? And especially with the Rittenhouse thing, we saw that a lot of platforms already clamped down, like GoFundMe deplatformed his legal fundraiser right yeah. away. Um, so I guess the first question in that case, or as an example, with that Twitter policy is, is he a public person? And probably when that first right. happened, you would say, no, he wasn't a public person. It's just so entirely subjective. And we know that the people who <laughs> rise to the top in those kinds of hierarchies are hostile to heterodox thinking. Again, like your work. Yeah. So I think... um I like that Twitter is trying to lay out some principles, like even just saying we're going to make this public private distinction is strikes me as potentially useful. I'm very curious what happens the next time there's like a Rittenhouse style event, because anyone who blows up on Twitter becomes a public figure very quickly. And um, I'm just skeptical that they can really control the flow of information. I I, I really am. And I think it'll often, there's often a risk it'll, so so I'm torn. Part of me is glad they're trying to lay out some principles that they're trying to describe. Here's what is and isn't acceptable. I just, I I don't think you can really control the flow of information. And and I think your example of like defunding um, an attempt to raise funds for the legal defense of someone who hasn't yet been convicted of anything. I, I just, I'm so worried these platforms were always veered toward that sort of reactionary stuff. Yeah, and I think you're right. The system routes around, you know, damage, which is the whole idea with the internet itself. It, you know, and people are always going to come up with the same as dot methods where they'll 
use abbreviations. And you see like some of the Antifa people use that already where they uh, try to evade uh, search algorithms. So they don't get caught up in filters. And there's always going to be stuff like that. But that also makes it a little more inaccessible to the general public. Yeah, I um, am. I'm just sort of really down on social media, which is not like a sophisticated or a helpful stance. I just think there's like certain elements of human nature where one you, once you uncork them the wrong way, it's just hard to go back. But I, I guess we'll uh, see what happens. Thank you, Patrick. Right. Uh, you. Before I take the next call, whoever the guy was who wanted to ask about that sports, con- the uh, Bishop, whatever controversy, if you can send me a quick tech um, email or DM, so I'll have your name. And then when Strauss comes on, I'll, I'll have you let you jump the queue. I don't want you to have to wait again. Uh, all right. Nick again, Nick, can you hear me? Hmm. There's a thing going on while I'll take a caller and they'll, they'll be there in the right box for a minute. And then they just drop Pat. Let's see if we have better luck with Pat. Hey, quick PSA. I think everyone's hitting the hang up button instead of the unmute button. That's what I did my first time around. <laughs> that is a useful PSA. But, um, Thank you. Yeah, thanks for taking the call. Um, so with your work, I mean, I hang out in the bar pod listen just because you seem to hang out on just uh, the most insane sections of the internet. Yeah, in your book, you kind of talk more about um, like in- insanity and uh, psychological science and the replication crisis. Um, basically I'm wondering like, what do you think is making like more of an issue in like online spaces, people believing things from institutions like social science or people going crazy online with furries, uh, trans activists and, uh, whatever else, (laughs) young adult authors. Basically it's like, what do you find more interesting or more damaging to, uh, online spaces? Yeah, I find it all interesting and, and like I'm lucky I get to write about all of it. I, I think what I try to do is like try to find the similarities in these different controversies and um, the whole idea of in-groups and out-groups, like who is us and who is them. I, I think sometimes people like overstate the ability of evolutionary psychology to explain the world and there's some bad evopsych, but mm-hmm. we're pretty clearly evolved to like be like, this is us and this is them and we're cool and they suck. And so many of the controversies I write about involve some element mm-hmm. of that, even even the replication crisis stuff, where you literally have sort of the the cool kids in social psychology gatekeeping the top journals and making sure their friends get published, and insurgents who are critical of them um, don't. I'll, I'll never forget a one of the most important social psychologists of like the era. She said about people who criticized social psych and wrote blog posts debunking bad statistics, she called them methodological terrorists. Mm -hmm. You're literally calling someone a terrorist for criticizing your friend's work. So I don't know. Does that make sense? Like just trying to draw out principles that apply? Yeah. It makes sense. And yeah, I think it it goes back to the thing, the topics you guys come back to so often online where it is like the cool kid table, if you want to call it that in these spaces where it's just, um, I don't know. Oh, no, it's insane. I guess I forgot I was going with that. But uh, yeah, it's nice to hear your response, Jesse. Thank you. Thank you. That was a good question. I appreciate it. All right, Matthew, do not hit the hang up button. Hit the unmute button. Let's see if this works. What? Did it work? Yeah, All right, dude. All right, I'm here. All right. That was a good tip because I totally would have hit the hang up button. He hadn't said that. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, I just wanted to hop in on the Twitter uh, conversation. Um, let me 
to run this out and, and get your, your thoughts. So, um, yeah. you know, look, we can all agree, right, that the best decade in human history was the 90s, I think. I think that's, like, beyond debate. And at, Dude, third eye, third eye blind, come on. Know, you nailed it. So, the, uh, at that time, right, like, if you were going to get information about what was going on in the world, it was obviously filtered through a very narrow gap of information, right? We were getting it from X number of magazines, X number of, you know, TV personalities, uh, very elite group kind of controlling the flow of information. And I felt like everything back then felt more cohesive and sane, right? And then, you know, we had this promise of the internet coming around. It was going to democratize information and so forth. And kind of tragically it has, right? And now, you know, anybody can get a fairly, well, not anybody, but you know, a large number of people can get big followings online and say whatever they're going to say. And they end up changing the narrative, you know, kind of yanking it back and forth in all kinds of ways. And it's kind of been horrifying to see. So when we see like, Twitter and, and Facebook and so forth starting to kind of put the screws down on what they allow on their platforms and who they're going to censor and so forth. Sometimes, like, while I reflexively think that's bad, I think, well, maybe this is just institutions kind of taking over again. And maybe that's a good thing because, you know, a, a smaller group of, of elites controlling the flow of information seemed to work better in the past than what we have now. Um, yeah, I get jerked back and forth between those two perspectives. What do you think? Is it good or bad? That's really interesting. That's a good point. I mean, I'd almost go back to like the 1960s when there were, I think, three or four TV channels and that was it. And would you rather have a situation where there's a few high-powered TV executives and journalists who decide what's important and what can make the air or something like the present where like anyone can publish something online, but but Twitter really controls the flow of information. I, I think at the end of the day, I just don't really trust a profit-oriented company like Twitter to make those decisions the right way. And, you know, I, I just in terms of the, the stuff I've covered, I, I feel like there's basic stuff where I can't... Uh, there's stuff I can't really say on Twitter because I'm, I'm, you don't know where the line is for getting suspended. And I'm not talking about, like, offensive or bigoted stuff, but just, like, if I, if I tweeted the wrong way about, like, legitimate research and gender dysphoria... I don't know. I, I just need more evidence that they know a good liberal way to, to draw the lines before I'm going to have any faith in them. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it, in some ways it just feels like it's kind of a crapshoot no matter what way you go. right? Yeah. Like there, There's always someone pulling the levers and there's always going to be the fear that they're going to do so badly. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe there's just no good answer to this, but um, sometimes when, when I hear about you know, Jack Dorsey stepping down and obviously he was better at his job, I think, than a lot of social media bosses. It's not great. Um, and he's handing over the keys to somebody else. You, you I, And then that person's going to, like I said, ratchet down the screws tighter. You think, oh, no, this is going to be terrible. And then sometimes you think, I don't know, is it really going to get worse? <laughs> or we just, is it, who knows, maybe this in a, in a weird twist of fate will turn out to be better. I, I think I'm stealing this from someone, but I wouldn't mind if things generally move toward more decentralized and more private communications. Like this obviously isn't private because anyone can join, but I, I just think there's a reason a lot of people are flocking more to like closed forums and group chats and stuff like that where, um, you know, there isn't some person hovering over everything that can make those decisions for them. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. All right, Pinky, let's try this again. Make next caller. Pinky dropped. All right, guys, remember to hit the uh, hit the unmute button, not the hangout button. Colin, let's give this a shot. I did it. 
It's next. What's up, thumbs up button. <laughs> I got it. Okay. Um, I have a couple questions, but I guess I'll start with um, it's kind of kind of a a more bar pod question. I'm a regular listener to bar pod, um, and I've noticed kind of a contrast between you and Katie in that um, I'm cool and she sucks. Uh, something of the inverse you know i identify <laughs> i identify as more of a katie i've always been kind of a lesbian though so that that you know that kind of makes sense i think we all have a lesbian inside of us i'd like to i like to think that as i go to sleep at night but um no uh, there's there's a there's a sense i get from katie in that she's sort of given up i don't know if she's given up or that she's accepted that she is hard to employ in sort of mainstream media. Whereas you, uh, uh, Jesse single have, have more, I don't want to say that you're hanging on, but you seem to have more faith than she does in main in sort of our establishment media. Is there a line that establishment media could cross that could sort of sever that faith or would it be the other way around where they would cut ties with you? I'm just, it's sort of a personal question, but it's, it's something of a a curiosity that I have. No, that's a really good question. The way I always answer this question is there's no one such thing as the media. The media is like a thousand people working for a number of institutions. And when I think about just the last year, the worst output of the New York times or the Atlantic versus the best output of those outlets. Um, there's a staggering gap there. And the New York times magazine published one of the best pieces about Kenosha. And they also published columns that like, I could not believe they got published. So I think I still believe media can do well. I've also noticed like a positive trajectory recently. I mean, I think the times hiring John McWhorter, um, Less importantly, but you know, the Times commissioned a review of a book about trans stuff, commissioned me to write it, which suggests like they realize they need a wide range of opinions uh-huh. or they're gonna um they're gonna uh, flounder a little bit. So is your view that we just need to like give up and burn everything to the ground and start over? To be honest, I don't know. I don't really have a, a solid view on this. Um I I'm a big fan of John McWhorter, so bringing him on to write uh, opinion pieces is kind of a sign of hope to me. Yeah. Um, But I feel at the same time, I feel like some of the institutions less so in media, more so in education are kind of uh, ideologically captured in a way that I feel is hard to fight against from the inside if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I would just, the one bit of caution I would, I would say is people like me and Katie get huge numbers of emails from academics who are really pissed off at, at the directions of their institutions. That's one thing that's at like the sort of top tier elite ones. The other thing is that if you like a community college in Missouri, or um, I got lunch with a professor who teaches psychology. She did at the time at, at um, in North Dakota, I think it was. They just have like a totally separate set of issues. So it's sort of the same argument I made about um, the media not being one thing, but being a ton of things. I, I just think that applies here too. And I'm not really 
ready to give up on it. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, wait, hold tight for one sec. I'm trying to find something here. Yeah, um, I'll just talk while you're finding something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, something else with community colleges in Missouri um, facing different things uh, as opposed to sort of top tier or elite institutions. Um, my my wife is actually in a community college in sort of a rural South Jersey area, and she, even in her community college. Hey, Colin, I've got a quick yeah. surprise for you. Oh, Hey, it's Katie. Oh my god. How do I unmute her? Oh no. That'd be so cruel if I brought her up and then I couldn't unmute her. <laughs> hey, can you hear Katie? me? Can you guys hear hey, me? Hey, how's it going, Katie? Can you hear me? Katie, answer. Katie, this is my fucking podcast. You're gonna answer Colin's question. Wait, can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, we can hear okay, you. Okay, great. Wait, what was the question again? I blocked out for a second. How do you get your skin so soft? <laughs> uh baby blood. <laughs> I always use baby blood. No, he was ba- he was basically saying that he and also we're playing chicken with our Substack contract by appearing on a non. Uh, let's oh be mindful shit! Of that. You didn't tell me about this. <laughs> oh, you, maybe you should have read the contract before you signed it, Katie. Uh, uh, well, Col- look, I had I had my juju that for me. Colin Colin basically <laughs> said that um he thinks that I still have faith in mainstream outlets and you don't. Uh, wait, you still have what? Wait, think- you, uh, wait, wait, you uh, the call dropped for a second. You, uh, you still have what, and I don't faith in mainstream news outlets and I still want to be like part of oh. that world and you're more skeptical. Well, I mean, that's a good question. I don't entirely know how to answer that question because it really depends on the situation. Well, so okay. call it, call and press around it a little bit. <laughs> well, so I guess it, it's more of a personal thing, but I see I see Jesse sort of, um, I don't want to say chasing after, but he, he's being brought on to sort of do book reviews in the New York Times on things that, you know, obviously he's done a lot of research on with the um, detransitioners piece. I think you you were brought on to review, um, uh, her name's escaping me, Helen Joyce's Helen, book. Helen Joyce. Um, whereas you seem, Katie, oh, oh we lost Katie. Um, well, let me just jump in for one sec because like, so part of the, one of the weird things about the moment and Katie, I'll bring you back on if you can figure it out. I think she was like walking outside. She just doesn't really understand like the internet. Let's just talk shit about Katie. Um, you know, Katie (laughs) makes more and gets a bigger audience writing a piece for Barry Weiss now than she would writing for slate or whatever. So I think people maybe have a weird sense of what's mainstream and what isn't at the moment. Um, hold on, Kitty texted me. <laughs> Try me again. Uh, uh, so, I, I, you know, I, I think, is Barry Weiss not mainstream media now? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good point. Uh, I think she, she can be seen as sort of alternative media, definitely. Um, but at the same time, she's sort of positioned, she's, she's not not mainstream, but she's new media, whereas the New York Times is sort of old guard media that's been around and is the trusted voice where I can walk down the street and ask somebody if they've heard of Barry Weiss and, you know, there might be a 50-50 chance that they have, you know? Right. Unless you're in Brooklyn, in which case they'll scream at you. Um, uh, exactly. Give me, or I do want to get to more callers. Let me just make Katie claim she's back in the room. And I want to, if she doesn't want to bring her up, I think she's having connection issues. Um, 
Okay. One sec. Yeah, that's fine. I'm not seeing her. All right. I'm going to move on to the next caller, but, but thank you, Colin. I appreciate it. Oh, wait. Hold on. Hold yeah, on. She's here. Thank you, She's here. Okay. Katie, I'm giving you one more chance, Katie. Don't fuck this up. The tension is just palpable in this room right now. All right. <laughs> Katie? Katie? Hey, can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, my God. This is like that fucking Verizon commercial. This is terrible. Um, I will not. I was going outside to play fetch with the dog. I will not do that. I will stay inside to talk to you. Sorry. Wait, let's just let's just let's, just pa- let's just pause up. on this for think, a minute. You're on an. I don't un- think that's actually. You're, what you're on an unfamiliar on. platform that relies on real time communication. <laughs> so like, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go for a hike during my first call. <laughs> Look, she was going. Hey, this isn't my here. show. This is your show, not my show. <laughs> okay, right. what was the question? Basically, just so it's about trust. Th- this idea that you've sort of trust given up, media, yeah. Right. And I, I pointed out that, like, yeah. at this point, how is how is writing for Barry Weiss less w- mainstream than writing a hundred fifty dollar opinion column for Slate? Well, I think the difference is that Barry pays a lot better than <laughs> than uh, than Slate does. Um, it's it's a really good question. I find myself sort of torn about my my skepticism uh, of media and the skepticism that has sort of it's not just about media it's about everything it's about you know i go to the doctor and all of a sudden i'm thinking like does the doctor actually know what the doctor's talking about you know and and i don't really know what the answer to this question is and i've interviewed a lot of people who for instance do a lot of reporting on uh things like um wrongful wrongful convictions and at some point you do sort of lose faith in systems and I Mm -hmm. don't really have a good answer because if you take that to its logical conclusion, like we criticize media all the time, does that mean we can't believe anything that we, that we read? Well, obviously we don't like Jesse and I do believe some things that we read. And so it it sort of comes down to the person, you know, I, I trust the, I trust this person at this outlet. I might not trust this entire outlet, but I trust this person at this outlet. And, and, and that's a sure. real, that's not a position that uh, I think is good for the consumer because most consumers don't have the time and the energy to sort of pick out the people that they, that they trust and say, I trust this person at this outlet and this person at this outlet. And, uh, and this is a new experience for me. You know, I, I sort of like grew up blindly believing everything that I read in, at, at the New York Times or listened to it on NPR. And I, and I don't trust outlets anymore and i haven't really figured out how to i mean like people ask me all the time when i talk about this well who do you trust and i have a sort of a list of people in my mind i trust and these are mostly people i know richard spencer richard spencer jesse (laughs) is at the very bottom of the list but there's some there are some reporters i trust and uh and of course that is also like influenced by my own ideology um but it, it, you know, it's a really difficult question, and it's it's one that I I feel like I've been grappling with for the last you know four or five years. Thank you, Colin. That sounds yeah, that sounds fair. Thanks for taking the call, Jesse. Right, Jesse, take, can I ask yeah. you a question? Do it. Okay, so long time listener, first time caller. Um, <laughs> would you uh, do me a favor and go ahead and rank the races? <laughs> There's no such thing as race, Katie. I can't do that. <laughs> oh, you're channaling Thomas Chatterton Williams, aren't you? Yeah, or Camille. Uh, or Camille or do, you, 
Do you want to stick around while I take another call or two? Sure. I, I might I might try to play fetch with Moose a little bit. So if you lose me, I'll, I'll come back. He looks so cute right now. He looks so cute. <laughs> this is the, the professionalism for which we are acclaimed. Robert, how's it going? Unmute yourself, sir. Am I unmuted? You're unmuted. How's it going? Fine. I feel like I should say Baba Booey. <laughs> well, uh, uh, consider it. that my yep. saying of it. Uh, the question I had was, because um, I read your column about Tim Pool today, and um, yep. it makes me wonder to what extent um, mainstream media institutions have people who have been Tim Pooled. And Good question. One thing I've always wondered, I asked this of the fifth column guys before, and they said the answer is no, but I found it hard to believe. My question is, to, do you think um, journalists who work for mainstream organizations ever like explicitly say we should do this story because it will have a political outcome that we like? In particular, like it'll help the Democrats yeah. or it'll hurt the Republicans or whatever? Or do you think they... They, they haven't yet gotten to the point where they're explicitly enunciating that out loud to their colleagues. What do you think, Katie? I've never heard a conversation like that uh, in my life, but it is like, for instance, when I worked at the stranger, the stranger is in a very sort of unique position in the, in the sense that uh, the reporters for the paper do endorsements, political endorsements. So the same people, and this is, this is a terrible idea. It shouldn't exist. But the same people who report on the city council are then deciding who should be on the city council. And, um, and so, and it's not weekly, you know, it's, it's not the Seattle times. It's not the New York times. It's slightly different in normal papers. There's a firewall between sort of editorial and reporting. Um, but in that sense, it's, it's explicit because people are within these meetings vying for who should be, uh, who should be endorsed. But other than that, I have never been a part of a conversation where somebody says, let's run this because like, like in the sense of like, if we worked at the New York post when the Hunter Biden laptop story broke, that might've been a place to hear, you know, we're going to run this or being at Facebook saying we're not going to allow people to, to post this story because we explicitly want one candidate to win. That's not something that is that I have experienced, but I've never worked for sort of a normal mainstream paper. And it, it, in the places that I have worked, it, 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 it's not just implied, like it's a part of the, it's a part of the infrastructure. You sort of don't need to have that conversation. I, I think like it's not as explicit as you're suggesting, Robert, but two examples I have. One is um, Nellie Bowles said that her piece on Kenosha on like the chaos in Kenosha was held until after the election. And she strongly suspected that was, you know, because it could be seen as harmful to Biden. Um, I think that's the kind of subtle decision where you might see some political bias. I also, I know an editor who either during editorial meeting at a major publication that you've heard of, he either pitched a story that would involve a, a, anti-abortion view or um, I think he was pitching it on someone else's behalf, like saying this person should write for us. And one of his colleagues in the meeting said, I mean, would we let a member of the Nazi party write for us? So, so that's not quite sitting in an editorial meeting and announcing we're never going to run a, an anti-abortion piece. Uh, but it, it is like a form of disciplining someone in the meeting sort of and be like, don't even bring that subject up or you're going to, you know, we're going to compare you to a Nazi. I, I bet a lot of that kind of stuff is going on. 
You know, there's also, so, so when I yeah. uh, wrote my detransition piece for The Stranger in 2017, so one of the, the big complaints about that piece was because, so it was published in June of 2017, of course, Pride Month. So we violated, violated that sacrosanct <laughs> Facebook month. But also, uh, there was at the time, there was a ballot initiative in Washington State, a bathroom bill. And so these proponents of the bathroom bill were trying to get enough signatures to uh, get the bill on the ballot. And they ultimately failed. It was always going to fail. But that was one of the major complaints from activists was that the piece was published right before that, de- right before that deadline. And we yeah. probably would have like avoided some headaches if we had waited an extra two weeks, but the editor of the paper at the time uh, had gotten fired. And so she wanted that to be like, this was the last piece that she worked on. So it was just sort of this like internal dynamic about the piece, but that would have definitely like, I don't know. It was just this like thing we could have avoided. The bill was never going to fucking pass. It didn't pass. There was a tiny minority of people who like wanted it to pass. Not even pass, like get on a ballot. Um, but that was certainly yeah. something that was talked about. Um, yeah, I think there's just a lot of, I, I want to wrap up this, but I, I think there's a lot of subtle decisions. I mean, I, I, like, I don't think Twitter would have ever blocked the equivalent of a anti-Trump story about like the Hunter Biden laptop. If you can imagine the flip side of that, I just think like some of these decisions um, are supposedly made for, for principled reasons, but aren't. Um, Thank you, Robert. Katie, I'm going to maybe kick you off now to take a few more calls because Ethan Strauss is about to come on. Oh, Do you have anything you want to say to the audience as I kick you out? I can't believe I have this power to just make you stop talking. I wish I had this like when we record. Uh, I guess my only message to the audience is uh, to unsubscribe from this immediately and go subscribe to our podcast. <laughs> All right. Bye, Katie. Bye. <laughs> uh, remove. All right. Dad, what's up? Hey, can you hear me? I can hear All you. Right. How's it going? Not bad. Um, imagine my surprise when I found out Jesse Single is striking out on his own and starting his own gaming podcast. Um, I wanted to ask you what's yeah, your exactly. game of the year for 2021. Oh God, this is embarrassing, but I need to, um, what have I even played this year? I just started, um, what's it called? Inscription. Have you heard of that? Nice. Yeah. I actually just bought it on the steam sale. Yeah. Inscription is awesome. It's like a deck building game with like this really cool horror theme. That's been awesome so far. I've been wanting to play it more. I, um, I started taking, this will be very boring to everyone. I promise it'll be quick boring story. I started taking piano lessons in part because I want some of that same feel of like, progression and addiction but video games as i get older make me feel more and more tweaked out and like i'm sort of i don't know i just feel like i can't justify putting hundreds of hours into them and and with games like uh dead cells and slay the spire especially slay the spire like that's exactly what happened what's what's your game the what should i do want to play some games over the holidays so Mm. for anyone listening what would you recommend for 2021 game of the year Man, I mean, this is technically a 2019 poll, but I played the DLC for Outer Wilds, and I recommend everybody check out Outer Wilds. The less you know about it, the better. I, ju- I, ju- I started Outer Wilds earlier this year, and I really liked it, and then I just got distracted nice. by some shit. It has such a cool and yeah. unique feel to it. Yeah, very unique. Really nothing else like it. And But I actually took a break midway through. It's a very difficult game to to take a break from, because there's a lot of memory and learning elements, but 
that's definitely a good one for anybody listening who likes exploration or sci-fi. Yeah. Hell yeah. Definitely. Awesome. Well, I'm going to definitely get to playing inscription because I have that in my library now. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Good anything, job, man. anything else? Thanks, Ben. Yeah. I think that's all for me. I, I had, there's a bunch of questions I could ask, but that was the most pressing. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Appreciate it, man. <laughs> I'm going to be doing this frequently. So uh, feel free to be awesome. a regular, make regular appearances. Perfect. All right, man. Look. For- Thank you, Jack. What's up? Oh, I just recalled in to talk to Ethan Sherwood. <laughs> Sorry about that. Man. I'll kick you back in the queue. I will pull you up as soon as we have a lot. Anyway, kill fuck, marry the uh, fifth column guys. Oh God. Okay. Jesus. Okay. Kill fuck, marry the fifth column. This is actually the most important question anyone's asked me. I mean, probably fuck Camille. If I'm being honest, he's a handsome gentleman that leaves kill and marry between Moynihan and Welch. 30 years of, of my life with one of them or the other. I think it's fuck Camille. Murder. Moynihan, Mary Welch. This is off the record. No one can tell them I said that. On that note, what's up, Pinky? Uh, okay, Grant. Finally forgot the unmute button. So um, I was actually originally wanting to react to your comment about having a show where you bring people on you disagree with to talk to them. Because I actually would love that yeah. as a concept, right? And, you know, it's like there's so many topics. The example I thought of was like, this whole COVID thing. I'd love to actually really hear someone who's not getting the vaccine talk about why. I'd love to hear someone who's demanding vaccine mandates talk about why. And you really get pushed on it. Because I just like, it's like everyone seems to set up their straw man in these shows and then tear them down. But the thing I worry about is that Tim Pool process of polarization you talked about in the email. And having those conversations is hard. And it's even harder if you have an open mic, right? Where it's like someone whose name is Pinky and is a pig image can like grab the floor. And I've wondered if you've thought about a mechanism for like keeping the audience in the same frame of mind of like respectful inquiry as opposed to like poning the other side. Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I think you would just, you would either need to find the right guests. I, I don't think I, I do like the idea of um, you determine who wins the vaccination argument. And if the unvaccinated person loses, they get forcibly vaccinated. And if the vaccinated person loses, they get unvaccinated. So I think you wouldn't want to devote like 30 minutes to just two people squaring off like that. I, I think if you found like really good people with a history of public speaking um, who are smart in good faith, and you can you can often tell from people's Twitter accounts how they would be in a chat. And I like sort of moderated it. Um, I'm not sure. I know you're just using it as an example. I'm not sure vaccines would be like, I, I think there's a lot of other subjects where that would work. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to move away from the more like deeply emotional ones, that like <laughs> yeah. the trans issue. Yeah, yeah. You know? I, um, I, but I, the other thing is, like, I, I I'm curious if I set up a room and I was like, I'm only taking calls from someone who has a bone to pick for me. I'm curious, a, if people would show up because I think some of the people who who disagree with my work just sort of want to yell at me on Twitter, which is understandable. And I'm curious how productive that would be, like, if I actually gave people a platform, like. You can say whatever you want in front of an audience. I, I could see that going really well, or I could see it going really poorly, to be honest. I could see it Maybe I'll just do that. I'll call it the uh, the Critics' Corner or the Haters' Club. Well, Haters' Club sounds like I'm um, judgmental. Um, all right. Let's give me something to think about. Anything else, Pinky the Pig? No, no. I uh, I love the, the idea. Maybe tell the people that designed the app that the 
unmute button in Zoom is identical to their hangup button. And <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not not great. That might I will be, pass uh, on that. Uh, yeah. So yeah. All right. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I'm bringing on. It's not my fault. Who is a guy I have um, interacted with via email forever. How is it? I'll make sure I do this right. Make next caller. What's up, man? How's it going? Hello. My hey. question was actually on that topic. So when you were talking to Colin, you said that you get a bunch of uh, emails from like professors and grad students who are frustrated. I'm kind of curious on like the breakdown yeah. between emails from haters, emails from random conspiracy theorists or fans, whichever you would define me as, and then emails from you know professionals <laughs> that are either upset with their coworkers or their institutions. We're talking like hundreds yeah. per week, or are we talking like? No, 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 I don't get hundreds of emails per week, but I'd say the overall pie is the biggest slice is, is people, you know, writing to say they appreciate my work. That This is obviously like a biased sample, but I think if you sit down to write an email for to someone, it means you appreciate their work. Then the next biggest is people emailing to tell me they've been canceled or they know someone who's been canceled or they're afraid they'll be canceled if they say the wrong thing, uh, usually in a university, sometimes in a workplace. And then the smallest fraction, unfortunately, because I think it's the most useful, is emails criticizing me. Uh, I sort of, I almost wish I got more of them because like people are able to lay out their critiques much more intelligently and less emotionally than on Twitter where it's all like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. But I, I get even mm-hmm. like... The magazine article that people got mad at me at me about, I, it's probably been eight or ten to one in favor of positive emails. Whereas on Twitter, it was just a bloodbath. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess the the other problem is uh, a long time ago you criticized Gamergators for having their uh, you know fifty paragraph email and then their forty five minute uh, YouTube video trying to explain exactly why you're wrong, and you're like, I'm not going to watch this. <laughs> yeah, I, well, that's the thing. If I if someone I've never heard of sends me a forty five minute thing, I'm I'm not going to watch it. Which is elitist, but that's just like, you know, in terms of of time management, that's inevitable. Well, I guess the, the, there's obviously a tension here between getting constructive criticism that is well thought out and having thought it out too well for too long. I, I think. Um, the okay so take if you have like a big complicated argument or a lot of feelings about something cutting that down into like something that's detailed enough but also not overwhelming is is like a rare skill and and it's as it, it's hard so someone who sends me a 10 page email it's very unlikely i'm gonna read that but i've gotten smart emails that have made me rethink my own work that are you know, four chunky paragraphs. So I think um, if you're trying to get a writer's attention or anyone's attention, who you disagree with, who's like a, a publicish figure, that's probably the way to do it. Because like, it, it's just a matter of everyone's drowning in email all the time and, and who has the time to, uh, you know, to, to, to listen to a really long thing. <laughs> Should I interpret that as a, I need to send shorter emails. Your emails are good because you do really detailed research. And yeah, no, I, that was not directed at you. It was direct, I'm thinking of some other. Uh, <laughs> no, I, you, you do legitimately good internet research. Uh, and I hope you get more emails from you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, man. Bye. All right. Ethan Strauss, I'm inviting you to speak. 
see if this works. Ethan, my friend, unmute yourself. Let's see if I can do something here. Oh, I think I did it. I think I figured out Dude. the simplest, most intuitive technology I've encountered. I did it. Ethan Strauss, everybody. Ethan, give people your... Uh, tell the people who you are. I think some of the people know you are who you are, but tell them. Oh, okay. Well, um, I once, a long time ago, was the beat writer uh, covering the Golden State Warriors for ESPN. That means the guy who follows the team around from town to town to town, uh, just talking about the games. I became a general NBA writer at The Athletic. I wrote about some cultural issues. I wrote about, you know, some business issues. I ruffled some feathers on occasion, and I have struck out on my own like so many people at Substack um, where I'm talking about the nexus of sports and politics and culture um, from a perspective. I don't even know how to describe it. Jesse, do we say it's fascist? Fascist. Oh, that's the one. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, that's the correct. That's the correct one. Uh, the- Your article on the correlation between skull shapes and rebounding ability. I thought was really good. <laughs> Yeah, and it it actually, unlike so much of social science that you've delved into, it replicates. So uh, people should look into that. Um, people should yeah. check out the House of Strauss. I, ju- I just want to say your your sort of work. I, I think the niche. I want to get in your take, but the niche you've um, carved out of sort of it's partly the business of the NBA, but really like the culture of the NBA and the culture of shoe companies and and the differences between the political messages, like the top executives want to put out there or feel pressured to put out there versus what the average sports fan thinks or sometimes what the average athletes thinks. I, I just highly recommend your Substack to everyone because I find this stuff fascinating. Well, thank you so much. It's very kind. And I think I like writing about it from the perspective of the NBA because the NBA in a way that is just, I think unique at this point has a valence in the culture as blue world sport. Uh, it just does. And I think that's fairly recent. Um, I think it was driven in part by, by Trump and then recently, uh, by the uh, BLM era. And it's sort of coalesced into being this thing that conservatives hate almost. And that puts it also in an awkward position because then a lot of people on the liberal side love it or see it as representative and meanwhile, so many of the players have values uh, and an outlook that aren't necessarily in complete accordance with what's fashionable at the New York Times. So there's so much tension um, and dissonance uh, to play around with from my perspective. Was it was it Charles Barkley or someone who had a quote to the effect of like an NBA locker room is the least woke place you've ever seen? Or did I hallucinate that? Well, you didn't hallucinate it. He said uh, the NBA locker room is sexist. It's homophobic, it's racist, and I miss it. So that's the Charles <laughs> Barkley, which is true. I mean, I've been in NBA locker rooms. It was funny in the aftermath of the Donald Trump grabbing by the pussy, uh, whatever we want to call whatever that was, because as bad as Trump is, it was funny seeing players saying, that's not locker room talk. I've been in locker rooms. I was thinking to myself, I've been in locker rooms. It's kind of locker room talk. And I've kind of heard much. Right. It's a hyper. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It's a very high T place. It's hyper masculine. I'm not saying that I'm a swashbuckling fucking locker room guy. I mean, I'm a media nerd. I'm like a Jewish media nerd. Yeah, obviously. no, this is a this is a high T show. So occasionally I'll have a, <laughs> a, a nerdy guest like you, you know, just to keep things balanced. Yes, to balance it out. Exactly. Well, wh- why don't you – so you had told me we were G-chatting earlier that you had a 
Rittenhouse NBA take. Why don't you give me that take and then we'll take whatever questions people have. Sure. I think um, because, you know, I love to try to coin things unsuccessfully. Um, I see a coinage in this one because the NBA appeared to release a statement on the Rittenhouse verdict, which is strange in of itself. And let's see if I can uh, pull it up. And it was statement from National Basketball Social Justice Coalition Executive Director James Cadigan on the verdict in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And the statement was, our thoughts are with those, uh, our thoughts are with the families of those whose lives were taken in this tragedy. The right to peacefully protest is a bedrock of our democracy and the national basketball social justice coalition remains committed to preserving that right for all. Any forms of vigilantism in our society are un. Uh, are unacceptable. I don't know why I'm doing such a bad job reading. Uh, so that was a curious statement, and it got bandied about in conservative world as woke NBA wokes yet again. And I was sort of confused by it as well. It's a very strange statement in the aftermath of that particular trial that the NBA would feel the need to put out an official statement is also odd to me. So I actually reached out to the NBA and talked with them about it. And so I'm going to coin this term as to what's happening here from my perspective. And I think be on the lookout for it in other corporations because it could catch on. Uh, I'm going to call it a divide and sponsor. That's the term I'm going for. What I mean is this. When I came to the NBA and I said, hey, what's up with this message? They said, hey, that's a National Social Justice Coalition. I say, "Okay, so that's not what you guys think. And they say, hey, we don't have an official statement on that. That's the National Social Justice Coalition. It's made up of players. It's the thing the players do. That's what they do. And so I perceive this new dynamic almost as some of these corporations that have an activist cohort will try to give them a section where they can say activist things and put it out there and maybe even get a retweet. But the organization itself is going to try to have an official neutrality. And I don't know if it's necessarily going to work. As far as I could see, people still slam the NBA for saying this, but they're adopting a new strategy of, hey, it's those guys. We retweeted it. It's them. We have no official position. They have an official position, not liking the Rittenhouse uh, verdict or whatever you heard. It's sort of interesting because, okay, so sorry, you're saying the NBA official account retweeted it? Yes. Um, it's interesting because one of the things I noticed about the Rittenhouse case was organizations like the ACLU or this um, legitimately good sort of um, criminal justice reform organization I follow, they put out statements that very aggressively seem to say this was the wrong decision and and often going against their own yeah. mission. But it sounds like the NBA, while they did retweet this, the NBA at least is still trying to be neutral on it, you think? Or do you think they're trying to have it both ways? Also interesting, when I talked to the guy, uh, James Cadigan, if he was saying the jury verdict was wrong, uh, because we did have a conversation about it, he said no. Uh, that was not his position, and that was not their position. So there's a strange kabuki happening here, uh, or happened here with this particular case, at least in, in respect to the NBA, where there is a want to express disappointment, as some players did, um, and saying it was predictable, and uh, some players said explicitly, uh, Fred Van Fleet uh, said explicitly it shows that the system is there to protect uh, white people or young white people specifically, which was an interesting wrinkle. Um, but yet, even the Social Justice Coalition, when you really put it to them and said, are you saying, is, are you saying that the verdict is wrong? They don't go that far. 
I, I have my own take on this just huh. from seeing it play out, Jesse, and I'd be curious uh, as to your thoughts on it. It almost felt like a lot of people got in over their skis and were reacting to Twitter vibes, and they didn't know the full context of the trial, even in its immediate aftermath. And then after they kind of went with the flow, uh, they went, oh, okay, this isn't actually what I thought it was. And people usually don't own up to that, but I think that's yeah. part of what we saw in the aftermath of it. I was surprised by how many organizations didn't do that and how many people doubled down and like New York times writers continuing to spread misinformation after the verdict. But I just think the NBA has such a different, obviously, obviously they've been more activist and embraced black lives matter. But at the end of the day, like something this controversial and this concrete, I just think they have a different set of incentives in the ACLU, even though I, I think the ACLU's performance here has been. Yes. Awful. Yeah. It, it, that's so yeah it's so funny because the aclu should have the incentive of adhering to the principle um but they don't they've got the donor base incentive the nba i no. do think is kept in check a little bit by the equivalent of the donor base incentive because the nba is disproportionately in red state areas more so than other leagues for reasons that are yeah. boring and rooted in business um the easy summary is they liked uh, easy stadium cash and the towns that did it were smaller and more closer uh more so closer to rural areas so they're the archetypal blue sport is more disproportionately red than some of these other sports and when you turn on the tv and yes, it has a lot to do with Delta, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure that's the main aspect of it, but there are other aspects. You see a lot of empty stadiums. And in the aftermath of a lot of the activist, uh, the activism, the NBA had these very cringe social justice jerseys. It was the type of... I do think it propelled me to Substack in a way, Jesse, because I just wanted to laugh at it the whole time. The players had these social justice jerseys on, but it felt like in my industry that we all had to, you know, take it very seriously. Um, but <laughs> they did all of that, and the ratings just fell off a cliff in a way that was dizzying to the people in the league. A lot of people in media uh, sort of pretended the situation away or said it wasn't that bad, but internally they were freaked out. So I do think they're trying to separate themselves from the activism. I think they think it hurt them. They thought it was part of their branding. They thought it helped them. They thought it was going to reach more people and you know younger people. I think internally they're freaked out by it. They don't want to touch it. They think it burned them. They just want you to focus on a great game tonight between the Warriors and the Suns. That's what they want now. Do you want to uh, take some questions? So the first sure. one is from a guy. Um, this is about the fake high school with the the football college the football team. Did you follow that story? The fake football team. Okay, I did not follow that story at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know what's fucked up though? I thought I had this brief flash. Hold on, I'm trying to get Jack on. I I told the guy to come back when you came on because I hadn't been. Following. Okay, okay. Jack, unmute yourself. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think what I think my bigger question is how full of shit are these um, these um, media, or, you know, between ESPN and Fox Sports and everything, like how much of that stuff just gets delegated away from the actual network and into one of these third party companies where like a message board in Ohio knows more about the school than the actual network that's paying probably hundreds of thousands of dollars at least to air the program. Well, Jesse, do you know, do you know about the story? Because I don't know the context. I mean, I, I I'm very curious, you know, I, I, I want to know about it now. Jack, it was basically a, a high school that 
wasn't a real high school, but just existed for sort of football purposes. I, I read about this at the time. I just, I forget the details. Mm. Yeah, it was. So this, um, this con artist basically started his own high school because, which was loosely affiliated with the Baptist church church. Um, and he was basically trying to like, you know, you know, basically, you know, he had this whole, you know, Oh, I'm going to be the next big coach and everything. I don't know what his delusions were exactly, but he kept convincing all these people. Oh yeah, this school's legit. But really he had a bunch of ineligible players who didn't really know what they were doing. And then, um, there was a, I guess there's these third party sites that stream all these games. And one of these guys was trying to get this game on ESPN and a high school message (laughs) board in Ohio was basically like, Hey, this team is full of shit. We saw them last year. Their players don't know what they're doing. They're going to get some poor kid killed. And the guy who was the streamer mm. was like, no, you're going to see how much better this team has gotten. I've spoken with the coach. They're academically sound. And then it happens and they get crushed like 50 mm. to nothing. It was really crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I cannot speak to this specific instance, but there is a dynamic where it seems as though the people at the publications of prestige in sports don't have a handle on the college sports world at all. And I heard, I heard about this a little bit. I know that I remember that when the story popped, but I'm glad you went over the details because that's an amazing story. Um, I, I also remember it was a shock to anybody at a publication uh, that again, is prestigious like ESPN or the last stop I was at. They didn't think the season was going to happen. The college football season following COVID and were blindsided uh, when it did. I think sorry, Clay sorry, Travis, just, who, just just to clarify, this is the high school. This was high school football 2020. Ah, okay. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm an idiot. Uh, that's, the, <laughs> that's the upshot. Sorry. I, um, I, did, I did the classic thing of um, when you're on some sort of cable show of just taking what somebody says and immediately pivoting to something that you know about. That you know about? Yes. Right. Yes, so, Jack it, Jack, it sounds like you're asking a question about puberty blockers. I can take this one. <laughs> Jack, I'm sorry we didn't we don't know more about this, but thank you for the question. Uh, it's fine. Well, I, I guess I'll ask the same question to you, Ethan, that I asked uh, Jesse recently. But kill, fuck, marry the fifth column guys. Oh my god! Well, my first my first immediate thought is that Welch seems like a stable husband. I mean, is that crazy? That's just my first. Yes, he is. I've met him. I've met his. She has a lovely wife, happy kids. All the uh, like, yeah. Well, I want to hear the rest of your thought process, but yes, you're right about that. Yeah. Okay. So kill, fuck, Mary. So I think you got to go with Moynihan just because he's such a wild card, you know, go for him on the edge. What kill or fuck? Well, well, for, for fuck. I'm sorry. So Mary Welch, Moynihan. So you're going to kill the one, you're going to kill the one black man. Basically you say I am for his contrarianism, you know, uh, (laughs) but he doesn't see himself that way. So from his point of view, it's not a hate crime. (laughs) exactly and that's the reason he must be killed so there you go <laughs> all right let's take a let's move to the next caller sam are you able to unmute yourself yes i think so hello sam hi hi jesse hi ethan hi sam hello um so i was super excited ethan by your divide and sponsor mantra i can't wait to see that everywhere because that's actually going to the question i was going to ask jesse 
um, I found Jesse on Twitter like a year and a half ago. And my fear with this kind of change in Twitter is that we're just going to see more siloing. Like I won't discover a Jesse, things will be divided. And it sounds like corporations might go that way too. I mean, I'm not going to know kind of what a corporation stance is because maybe they'll say one thing in one platform and one another, and it'll be one arm of the NBA saying one thing. And I'm just curious, Jesse, too, from your kind of background in studying psychology, if you see that siloing sort of affecting people's, you know, mental perceptions of these things. So, Oh yeah. You just, you just mean the problem of siloing with regard to like evidence and information in general. Yeah. Oh, it, it's, yeah. I think it's like one of the biggest problems we have right now in terms of the way people process information. And every time there's a big controversial story, I mean, I was obsessed with the Rittenhouse case precisely for this reason. You had at least two really different versions of who Rittenhouse was. And in some cases, what he did in some cases, basic geographical questions where just two different versions of the fact and facts. And I think my only hope is that the average person is less online than me and less online than the people I interact with, because if the average American is in this like distorted and information ecosystem, I I'm, I'm worried. So I, I think this is like just what, what tears a country apart. Ethan, do you think I'm like over, over hyping the fears here? No, no. I mean, it, it certainly was a, a situation where it was almost a caricature of conservatives feeling wronged but it did seem like it did seem like what happened to use a poker analogy is that at the very beginning um the kind of blue world media went all in they went all completely in the very beginning. he's a white they supremacist saw. he's a vigilante yes. and and, it, and you can they, the initial images because he is a kid with an ar style rifle and people from places like me and i i think you like we're not used to seeing that but i don't know if you're a journalist it's your job to yeah. go deeper sorry i didn't mean to talk over you no, 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 no. I was just going to make a very boring poker analogy. But yeah, th- but I think you made a great point that wasn't made enough, which is that there are different cultural associations with guns and carrying and that the people who live where I live are just horrified to see a teenager with a gun, I think, in any setting and in another place that is less strange, perhaps. And that was definitely a component that drove this. But yeah, it felt like it was all in. They got two cards uh, pre-flop of a uh, white kid with gun at protest. <laughs> and I don't know the, the river. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What was the flop? The flop was a child convicted child molester chasing him. Uh, oh God. <laughs> guy tried to hit him with a skateboard. who's convicted of domestic abuse. Then it was just, it was so crazy and such a good journalistic case study that it turned out. I didn't, obviously the whole thing's a tragedy. I didn't want anyone shot, but like it turns out that, two of the people he shot like were doing more illegal shit than he was doing. It was just a month. I don't think he should have been out there. I'm yeah. I, 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 whenever I talk about uh, guns, people who know about guns are like, well, how would, what rules would you make? And my answer is like, I have no idea. I don't even know what a gun is. Um, yeah. I just, I think, I don't think you need a state where uh, you can just hand a teenager an AR style rifle. I think we should focus more on that. But well, anyway, wait, Sam, Sam yeah, are you I, addressing what you asked. Yeah, no, that that's literally, and it's funny you bring up Rittenhouse. I, one of my best friends flew home from California over Thanksgiving, and we had this exact conversation where I, I literally couldn't understand what she was talking about. It was like we had completely came at the story from different sides. I, he murdered she and I 50 people, lined up 50 people. 
I mean, essentially, that's what she said. And she was sort of horrified. And I was sort of horrified by her horror because we're very close friends. And I consider us sort of like minded with similar values. But, you know, I looked at this and went, you know, this is a horrible tragedy with a, a dumb kid. And she sort of saw it as like, this is a further evidence that our country is descending into white supremacy. And there was no convincing her otherwise. It was just. And but there is a reality, you know, sometimes there are gray areas. I mean, this case was so unusual because usually in these cases, I mean, we all we all go through this and we've listened to a, a true crime podcast where it's he did it. No, he didn't. Oh, OK. No, no, I'm sure he did it. No, wait a second. He didn't. Oh, I now read this article about it and they hit a bunch of information. But there was video in this case of everything. And the biggest divide in it was really between people who had seen it and people who hadn't. I don't think it was ideological, be, at least in my life, because I think I had some family members and I just go, did you watch the video? And there was kind of a pause, it, it, dot, it, dot, dot, dot. And, right. You know, well, tells the tale. But you, but there were people, and, and, and we'll wrap this up because I want to get more callers, but like there were people who are professional journalists who were opining about this on Twitter after the verdict, who appeared to have made the conscious decision not to watch the video, but to continue opining on it, which is just, how do you even explain that kind of behavior? It's like, I'm worried if I watch this thing, I'll come to the conclusion I'm not supposed to. So I'm just not going to watch it, but I'm going to keep having opinions. I I just don't get that. It's insane. It's totally crazy. And I share Sam's fear. You know, it's that it's very destabilizing when you start to sense that everybody else is going crazy, <laughs> but sorry. Yeah. We'll close. Except that for us. We're the, we're the only sane people. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's why we deserve the Substack money, you know? Thank that's you, why. Sam. Okay. Thank you so much. This is Simon, who I believe is my first, uh, second time caller. Cause I was fucking around with this the other night and he, he was there. Simon, unmute yourself, sir. Yeah, man. Uh, second time around. Thank you. Welcome back. Um, I'm actually really, uh, Frustrated, I don't have a question for Ethan except to say that I um, really enjoyed your appearance on the uh, bar pod uh, a couple of months ago. Oh, thank you. Um, but my question, well, it's more of a comment, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> on your uh, thing you did a couple of nights ago, you met you, the Loudoun County uh, school board thing in the Daily Wire reporting sort of got brought up and about how you were frustrated that you had um, inaccurately portrayed uh, some of the things the school had done. Yeah. And you'd said, oh, maybe we won't cover um, sort of breaking news as much uh, and just focus more on internet bullshit. Yeah. But um, I really think, like, I love when you're covering current affairs. I think it's, like, it's awesome. So I just really wanted to try and uh, dissuade you uh, from that. And, you know, you can't make an omelet without cracking a few eggs. Um, yeah, thank you. No, I appreciate that. And and our next episode is on a big news event, and it's but it's going to be the result of like a fair amount of research and actually trying to tell the truth about that. So I think it's less I'm averse to chiming in on current affairs and more that I I don't think we're in the position to like cover breaking news three days after it happens. I just think we need to be like um, what journalists what's the term, Ethan? It's like a day a day after a f- day after follow. Maybe that's a newspaper term. Uh, I, it's not. It's it's not. A it's a TikTok. TikTok, TikTok is when you look back. <laughs> no, it's a TikTok. Well, there's, okay, no, no, there there's like a day. Anyway, there's like a there's the story you write the day of the thing, and then the next day you do an analysis piece. So I think for us, two, three weeks later, three months later, if everyone gets it wrong, I think that's a good sweet spot for us. That was all I was saying. Yeah. Cool. No. Fair enough. All right. Thank you, Simon. Ryan. 
Yes, uh, Jesse, it's great to great to talk to you. I've been a big fan for a while. I actually have two questions. I originally had one about Rittenhouse, but uh, I'm actually from the Bay Area. I'm a huge fan of the Warriors, so I, I have one Warriors question as well for Ethan, if I can ask both those. Yeah, uh, with the Warriors, uh, I feel like nobody expected us to be this good this year, and I think that kind of came in the buildup of we, we had all these super teams being created. We'd have the Warriors super team. We had the Lakers, we had the Clippers. Um, and the Warriors right now aren't a super team. They're really run just by staff. And so I guess the question comes to be like, how did the, how are the Warriors this good when they just don't have the level of talent that so many other teams have had? What was the big change that they had from that, the last year to this year? Uh, it might be a boring answer, but they're just deep. You know, they replaced a lot of bad bench players with good bench players and guys like Otto Porter, Bielitsa. I mean, these guys know how to play. It's similar to Blockton Reported. How, many... how does Blockton Reported? How are we so consistent? We have a, a deep bench. <laughs> Sorry, I had to jump over that. I'll, I'm going to mute. Yeah, yeah. No, I want you to be involved because with this stuff, I never know. I never know how many people listening want to actually hear a, an actual basketball take. Uh, but I'm just like you, man. I'm just like you who asked the question. My analysis is not better than anybody else's when it comes to the games themselves because I have I have turned my back on that life in in many ways and while I you know enjoy I just enjoy sports like a normie now Jesse that's what I do these days do, do, do you <laughs> do you miss sort of getting to write the first draft of stuff because this does sound similar to like not that not that we do that on bar pod but that question of like is it more fun and rewarding to like have an early take or to to do sort of deeper analysis there are aspects that I miss. It was a crazy lifestyle, though. I know it was too much in the totality uh, to go to over, you know, over 100 NBA games in a year um, and just be on the road constantly. You start to feel like you're losing your mind. Uh, you'd go to five different cities in seven nights and they'd be very different cities. I remember one road trip was L.A. to Salt Lake City to Memphis to Minneapolis to New Orleans in seven days and you just think of the different cultures and weather and everything you start to go crazy so i have an understanding that uh it's good to move on but it's fun to be in the mix there's an energy to just a big time sports event just a buzz there's something delicious about being in a building with twenty thousand people and oh, yeah. feeling feeling their tear in a way uh that makes me sound sick but i enjoy <laughs> it and so i miss that i miss that aspect the most uh, Ryan, do you, so guys, listen, I'm going to close up the queue. Jennifer and Mickey, we will take your questions. I'm going to wrap it up after that. Um, I'm just running out of steam, but Ryan, do you want to ask your other question before we uh, kick you off? Yeah, I'll try and keep it uh, brief. Um, with the, with the Rittenhouse, I, I think there's this common refrain that, that if, if you had a black kid in the same situation, uh, that he wouldn't have survived. And then there's like a huge Twitter debate over that. And I'm, I'm kind of less interested in whether or not that's true and more I think the implication of that is to say that we should be more punitive toward white men in, in our carceral system. And I, I guess I'm, I work at a, the DC public defender's office and it just seems to me that there's like a lack of facts around this, just in the sense that like white, uh, white Americans in this country are still incarcerated at like two to eight times the rate of any other uh, country that's developed along the lines of ours, that we incarcerate yeah. black Americans at insane rates, but we incarcerate white Americans at far too high rates as well. It just seems like there's a, an easy pragmatic narrative that we are like all poorly affected by this. Yeah. Kind of well, not, not all, right? Not if you have, if you have money, you're much less likely to be. That's the real uniting fact. Fair, right? fair. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel like I'm sort of channeling Matt Iglesias um, and I sort of have stolen this argument from him, but 
uh, if you want criminal justice reform and you want a lot of people to vote for it and to like elect the right DAs, well, that's the thing. It doesn't, it seem like you would want to explain we are all in this together, that this isn't just a quote unquote black issue. Cause it can simultaneously be the case that black people are disproportionately offended, but in like opioid ravaged areas, there's all kinds of police abuses, right? Yeah. I agree with everything you just said. I mean, that's, that's just another yeah, I mean, question sometimes. I also felt like that common trope was illustrative of a cope um, because if the evidence was on the side of people who felt at some level that this was somebody from the other team and they wanted him punished, they would just point to the evidence. So instead it became this game of, oh, if he was somebody else, then something he wouldn't have deserved would have happened to him, Um, which, yeah, I don't think that's the expression of how we want justice meted out in a civilized country. The idea that you're, you don't deserve it. Um, but somebody else would have gotten something undeserved. So therefore we're going to punish you. It's just totally asinine. Yeah. Well put, uh, Mickey, what's up? Hey, can you hear me? We can. Cool. Thanks for, thanks for, uh, letting me up. Um, yeah, speaking of the, the Rittenhouse thing, I wanted to ask what you guys thought about the, uh, the arguable sort of memory holding of the, the Waukesha, um, thing already, even though it's only been a week, like from, I, I've paid a good ab- amount of attention to it. And it seems to me so far, like I'm guessing that the guy that did it didn't have any like free planning. I don't think it was like a terrorist attack or anything. Yeah. It just seems like I, I heard something today that he was like bipolar. Like, I think he just completely lost his fucking mind. And like, maybe in that moment, like maybe in that moment, there was like some tinge of racism or something in his mind. I don't know. Like maybe we'll find out. Maybe we won't, but it's crazy yeah. to me. Like how, like, it's so obvious that if it was like a white dude and like a vaguely yeah. brown, you know, POC, like I, no, group I, dude, of people. I, I'm so depressed that I have to agree with you. Cause I feel like yeah. five years ago, yeah. I would have been like, that's a Fox news talking point, but I, 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 oh, I totally, totally. In ter- so part of the theme, like another mm. caller ass, like this idea of like fragmented informational ecosystems, I'm really worried about just like a complete lack of trust. And the idea that it's only MAGA chuds who notice how differently these stories are handled or how differently Kyle Rittenhouse, who was immediately named mm-hmm. a white supremacist mm-hmm. was handled versus this guy. I haven't looked into it closely. My sense is he had the same like random sort of one-off disturbing social media posts. Probably half the country has and 80% of people with untreated mental illnesses have it. Doesn't, right, but but right. I just feel like if, if Kyle Rittenhouse had had that same level of social media, whatever, that would have been the story. It would have been declared a political, an act of political terrorism. Do, do you agree with that, Ethan? Uh, yeah, I think that's fairly obvious to people, even in Blue World, they're starting to concede it. It's just, it, it's just hard to deny that that influences how the story is covered. And what's strange is that this happens a lot in the aftermath and has for a while of uh, awful events. I'm not talking about the ideological component, but just the idea that we're given a rough draft that is completely wrong um, or just not what we thought initially. Uh, I would recommend people read uh, Columbine by Dave Cullen. So good. Everything. So good. Yes. Yeah. This is an yes, example so of a journalist just sort of dedicating a sizable chunk of his career. Well, I don't know, probably five, 10 years to understanding what actually happened in Columbine. And it turned out the vast majority of the stuff we all think we know about Columbine was just wrong. It's such a 
Yes. Yes. And so we're having that happen all the time. I think back then it didn't have a political uh, coding or valence to it. It just had to do with the anxieties of that particular era in the 1990s. But now it has the political component and that's how we get a very confused narrative and people jump to conclusions. And then it's just really hard to shake what people think about it in, in the aftermath. And, you know, I'm getting away from the, the Waukesha uh, attack or whatever we're calling it, I, I suppose. But yes, everybody at this point knows the game. They know, I, I think increasingly, unfortunately, the setup is this in media. They're not just dispassionately um, reporting what's important to us. They're almost like people at a sushi boat just waiting for the item they want. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the sushi boat theory of journalism. Dim sum. Yeah. Ooh, a okay, white, that's a what white I'm kid pointing who tonight. somebody. I'll try that. <laughs> yeah mm, delicious oh this uh this oh wrong guy wrong politics send it now don't want that i'm just gonna look that off as it ooh, ooh, a, a hate a hate crime in the middle of chicago on a winter night that is delightful <laughs> <laughs> you see somebody so fucking depressing i shouldn't i shouldn't have gone for this i overdone I, I, I gorged on this on the jesse smollett case <laughs> that's uh, the puff that's the poison yeah. puffer all right mickey one. before <laughs> we get in trouble anything anything else you want to add no, no, that's pretty much it. I mean, I, I was asking you guys about it just because it was like, you know, my fear is that it, it's like, I can see how like the the media, like if, if, if it's a story related to like what 5% of the country might think they could successfully yeah. tamp it down. But I feel like it's just like happening all the time with like basically half the country. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. I, I do. Think- so crazy. I do think, and not to, I'll do a quick plug before Jesse ends this. I will be coming on to talk further at 10 Yes, I'm sorry, uh, I should have mentioned. Ethan is, is, is no, that's, to- tinkering with, you're doing your own pilot. Every- yes, I, my, my inaugural, my, my maiden voyage, whatever you want to call it. I do think a lot of people in media, without articulating it, have taken up the position of trying to prevent a preference cascade among the, uh, among the proles. And I don't think they ever articulate it, but it just seems like it's all part of this. Like there's this fear that if we tell people the truth, then, Oh my God, they're just going to don white hoods and march out there. If we tell I hate it's them, so paternalistic, I hate hmm. that shit. Yeah, yeah. It's so fucking annoying. Yeah. I don't, um, I, I know that other people are coming out. I was just going to say, if you guys, Oh, actually, never mind. I know you're going to wrap up the room soon. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you, Mickey. Anytime. So uh, R and Jennifer are the two remaining people. Jennifer, I believe, got booted. I'm going to boot her to the front of the line. R, you will also get to speak, but then you're going to be the last speaker. Okay. Jennifer, invite to speak. Oh, wait. Jennifer, ignore that invite. Let me... <laughs> Hold on, Jennifer. One sec, guys. I'm still learning the shit. Um... Huh. All right, we're gonna do R first. This is my bad. Jennifer, we'll still get to you. What's up, R? R, can you hear us? Is R muted? R, I believe you're muted. Be careful unmuting though, because the buttons, the buttons look similar. I'm told. R, I'm giving you five seconds to unmute, <laughs> and then you will be banished from this entire platform forever. <laughs> I, feel like I have I'm, that power. I feel like I'm doing math homework listening to Loveline in high school right now. <laughs> exactly. I have way too much power, Ethan. No one no one man should have all this power. Okay, I'm removing you from the queue. Jennifer. <laughs> Jennifer, what's up? 
Hey there, I just pocket requested to speak. So I actually have nothing to say. But since you put me back in after um, I took myself out, I thought I should at least say hi. And thanks for doing this. And I'm excited to see what you're going to do. Thank you, Jennifer. I really appreciate that. That's so nice. It's very nice. Um, okay. So look, everyone, I, this was really exciting. We went for... When did I start, Ethan? What day is it? Who am I? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Are you afraid? This technology is so easy to use. Are you afraid that you're going to accidentally have it on after you're done? Is that a fear? Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm on my way to a, to a clan rally. It's <laughs> no, no. It's going to be... Um, no, no. You know what it's going to be? It's going to be like, hey, you're going to be talking to your girlfriend or whoever. Like, hey, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, nothing. I'm just grifting. I'm just... I, I don't believe any of this. <laughs> no, I... Babe, babe, <laughs> we've been dating two years. It's time for us to do an open mouth kiss. Come on. Uh, okay yeah. everyone follow ethan everybody check out his show what's your show called is just house of strauss here too it's just house of strauss it's the easiest it, it rhymes 10 o'clock 10 o'clock tonight bring your questions 10 o'clock western time so 1 a.m eastern mm-hmm. indeed right. 10 o'clock cool time. <laughs> I'm, I'm not staying up for that shit i'll come on oh. when you do a normal hour um, well, but in all in all honesty guys this was a little bit scary and intimidating but we had more than 100 people in the room for the full hour and a half uh next time i've got some interesting stuff planned including we'll do guests for the whole time ethan thank you so much for being on the inaugural show your presence um really carried things because i was flagging so thank you so much ah it is my pleasure jesse anytime thank you everyone for listening there'll be more soon bye